So I hope you can make it back out on Saturday afternoon, late, for a Christmas Eve service. I think it's 4 o'clock, is that right? 4 o'clock sound good? So that'll be fun, get together on Christmas Eve and worship the Lord. And then, of course, next Sunday, we're right back here uh, in the church and worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, maybe some crying children around Christmas morning, but uh, they'll be worshiping the Lord. And, of course, it's the best thing for them as well. Well, I want to invite you to take a look at Christmas with me from the New Testament. Again, take your Bible and open up with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Luke, chapter 2. While you're doing that, let me open up kind of my discussion this morning by calling to your remembrance somebody out of American history, Thomas Jefferson. On April 11, 1823, three years before he died, Thomas Jefferson, third president of the United States, wrote a letter to John Adams, second president of the United States, in which he discussed Jesus Christ. Already known for his denial of Christ's miracles, Thomas Jefferson predicted the collapse of all belief in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. He wrote this to Adams. He said, quote, the day will come when the mystical creation of Jesus by the supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin will be classed with the fable of the creation of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. We may hope that the dawn of reason and freedom of thought in these United States will do away with all this artificial scaffolding and restore to us the genuine doctrines of Jesus the most respected reformer of human errors. The reformer of human errors. Actually, that's exactly how Thomas Jefferson viewed himself. That was his role, as he saw it, was to correct human errors. Like when several years ago, I was driving home with the Christmas tree on the top of the car, and I push the button to raise the garage door. And, of course, all the kids were there to see this. And there was a second car behind me filled with wife and kiddos as well. And I had the car, I had the Christmas tree with, of course, the trunk facing forward. And as I went into the garage, I had completely forgotten that I had a Christmas tree on top. And so the trunk of that Christmas tree hit my garage door, the one that goes up and smashed it in. And the sound was phenomenal, and all my kids let me know of it just because they're so kind and want to be sure that I remember that they remember their father. Errors, you know, like Jesus came to fix errors. I don't know if he was an official scorer or not. But you see, if there's no virgin birth, then we are of all men to be most pitied then there's no rescue from our original sin. There's no sinless atonement. There is no resurrection. The virgin birth is suited to our needs, our needs to be cleansed from our guilt, inwardly washed inside by atonement, not by mere words, not by philosophies. We need to be loved eternally by a father who is imminently good and with a son who loves us with an 
undying love, even to purchase us and ransom us back to God. This is what we need, and this is what the virgin birth gives to us. We have a a man who can make an atonement and make a sinless atonement, and he can atone for our sins. Not merely a reformer of human errors. In fact, that is merely Thomas Jefferson looking into a Bible and finding in it a mirror which only reflects his own scarred image. We look into the Bible this morning with no scarred image, but into the very face of God himself, into the truth that it gives us. In chapters like we're looking at this morning in Luke chapter 2, give us the background to the virgin birth so that our faith rests on facts, not on theories and not on intelligent men making up for us what we ought to believe in their own endeavors to get us to believe in myths. And what Luke does here is it's wonderful. It weaves together a world history with a personal history of two different people, Mary and Joseph. So this will be great. Let's launch right into it. You're going to get these two things going back and forth, the world history at the time and then the personal history of Mary and Joseph. Look at verse 1. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. So the world history kind of comes in first in order to set the main stage. And you have, first of all, mentioned back in verse 1, someone that you might or might not be familiar with, a guy named Caesar Augustus. This man was the very best and the very greatest of all the Caesars. His career as the emperor of the entire, you know, widespread Roman Empire began about four decades before this when Julius Caesar, his uncle, was killed. Julius not having any sons, they looked instead to a nephew, a powerhouse of a young man at 18 years old named Octavius. And he did so well, he was such a great emperor, as they went on, they actually renamed him Augustus because he was so august. It was a way to honor him and almost divinize him but not quite. Other emperors coming in later would expect that, men like Nero and Domitian, men like that, but not Caesar Augustus. He was actually kind of a, okay, for a political figure, kind of a humble guy, kind of the Donald Trump of his time, frankly, but he had his own manner, and he really was a very successful Caesar, measured by how peaceful he made the known world at that time. He he was an amazing man, with amazing strengths, and actually an excellent Caesar from the political perspective. Now it's 36 years later after he becomes the emperor, when you're reading here, when he makes this decree, as it says in verse 1, that all the inhabited earth, and by the way, that just tells you the power that he has. He can make a decree 
that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. By the way, that refers to the Roman Empire. They actually knew that there were a lot of people who lived all over the rest of the world, but to them, the inhabited world is us. You know, kind of like the ugly American who goes overseas, and he goes, oh, wow, there's actually people who live in the world besides United States citizens. The idea was, hey, if every, anything that's important, it happens in the Roman Empire. Come on. And, and so that's the idea here. Luke is using a word that everybody would have understood, the inhabited world. It wasn't meaning South America and China. It was just the Roman Empire because, hey, if there's anything important going on, that's kind of a Roman-centric view of the world. If you don't live there, it's almost like you don't matter. The idea being kind of in a popular sense. So when was this? Well, in verse 2, it says that this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor. It was in those days, as it says in verse 1. In those days. The days of what? The days of Mary's pregnancy. The days of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And we, you, you see all that when you read chapter 1. And so Luke is kind of wrapping it all up and saying, In those days, Mary was pregnant through the Holy Spirit and had been announced by Gabriel, kind of, oh, by coincidence, the most powerful man on the earth made a decree. A dogma is the word. He made a dogma. It's like an executive order. He made an order that a census be taken. And the idea is pretty simple. How many people can we tax and how much money can we raise? Now, he did a bunch of these, and he also made all kinds of other decrees. For example, a decree could be made to have a particular people, all of them move from one region to another region. And it didn't matter what they felt or thought about it, they had to go. Or, like around other parts of the Roman Empire, when you need more soldiers, what do you do? You make a decree that everybody from this region, all males, 16 to 20, must immediately be enrolled in the Roman army, unless they have a medical exemption. So he could do this. This was the kind of power that he had. It, it, there was no one to challenge him. Even the Senate, which had kind of raised up against Julius Caesar, had by this time entirely allowed Caesar Augustus to make his own laws, make his own will, make his own decrees, and everything has to happen according to what he says. So here he is. And by the way, if you want to, if you want to kind of measure the joy that these decrees that Caesar made, just think in your own country of how much joy there is when the president makes an executive order. Everybody loves it, right? Everybody's so happy. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, we're so grateful that we have to pay more taxes. Thank you so much. It was even worse than that. Because after all, there was no appeal. You couldn't even debate it. Debate was itself a form of insurrection. So here he comes then with an executive order, this decree for the registration of all provincial citizens for the purpose of assessing taxes. They try to figure out how many people live in the land, where do they live, and let's figure out how much we can tax them. This particular decree that's mentioned here in verses 1 and 2 demanded every Israelite to go to their tribal city to register with the government, their names, to pay up and then go back home. 
Now, Augustus did at least two of these during this period of time. And Luke is careful in verse 2 to specify which of these it is. He says in verse 2, this is the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Well, that certainly helps us locate more specifically on the time. Quirinius ruled Syria twice, once from 12 to 4 B.C., and then once from 6 to 9 A.D. And so what that does then is it places Jesus' birth in the first of those regions, somewhere between 12 and 4 B.C. 12 is way too early. 4 is almost a little bit too late. Probably 6, 5, or 4 B.C. is where the year that Jesus was born. It couldn't have been the later one because Luke says later that Jesus started his ministry at about 30 years of age. Well, that would make him like around 2021 if it was the later census. So if you're following with me here, I know I'm getting a little detailed here. Basically, what Luke is doing for you is settling you into a fact of ancient world history to let you know when in history Jesus Christ was born. It's world history presented to you quickly and strikingly, along with a little theology to go up there. Now, if you're like me and you're going, wait a second, you're saying he was born in 6 to 4 B.C. I thought he was born in like 0 B.C., right? I got bad news for you. You ready? Two pieces of bad news. Number one, there is no 0 B.C. <laughs> you go from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. Isn't that funny? And then, and then not only that, there is no year zero, in other words. And then, and then this, which is kind of funny as well. When they made the Julian calendar and they updated it in the 1500s, <laughs> oops, they made a mistake. They actually like got some things wrong. So as it so often happens when men make calendars, they make mistakes. So here it is, now we have it. But somewhere between 6 and 4 BC when that, when that census was, was, when Quirinius was governor, probably at the later point of it. And, and by the way, when you read that name Quirinius there and you read that name Syria, Syria is very big in the news right now. And if you follow world politics, you know who is Israel's arch enemy even today. The same country that it was back then, Syria. So the very fact that Syria and a governor of Syria rules over Israel is enough to tell you, O Bible student, that Israel is under divine punishment at this time. They're in what Jesus called the times of the Gentiles. So there's a, there's a time period going on. There's a theology going on here for the person who wants to read between the lines a little bit and to understand that this is so hard if you're a Jew that some guy who lives across the sea makes an order somewhere in his lush palace demanding that you have to get up out of your home, you have to make a trip at expense to you, and you have to go, and the indignity of it all is to pay taxes in order to fund more Roman soldiers who will populate your land, keep your people under rule, excise more and more taxes, and you have to pay for it, not just merely by money, but by effort and time and just the indignancy of it all to show Israel is in a time of judgment. They're in a time of pain. It's a time of hurting. Now, I would also want to tell you at the same time that, frankly, most Jews believe the exact opposite. 
Okay, if you were to read the daily, the Jerusalem Times back then, it would have been like all the related news to how we're going to overthrow the Roman Empire and how this is time of God's triumph for us and all we have to do is just believe in ourselves and everything will get better. You wouldn't have had people going, oh yeah, we're under God's judgment because what then the Messiah came, they would have like, oh, you're the Messiah. What do you tell us to do? They were looking for a Messiah and they were expecting a Messiah, but not one who was like Jesus. They were looking for one who was the better than kind of in their mind what Caesar Augustus was, the decree maker. They got Jesus Christ, this humble, lowly man, serious, one of them, not even good looking, probably, right? Nobody looked upon him, it says in Isaiah 53, and noticed him, really. He was just very, very easy to overlook. They got a guy who, when he came in to take the city by king, he rides in on a donkey. You know, he's just the opposite of the world ruler kind of guy. So here's the Jews. They're basically expecting just the opposite. They're not looking for this. Everything is bad in life for them as they look at the world situation. Luke is just giving you world history here. He's telling you, look, the birth of Jesus Christ is real. It happened at a real time. You can pinpoint it in history. And and so what an incredible inconvenience this must have been for the people of that time. In fact, look at verse 3. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city, meaning tribal city. And of course, you know, for the guys who come from Judea, like Joseph, hey, he's got to go back down to Bethlehem, the lead city of Judea. Really, the, at least the lead city, tribally speaking. And so they have to make this trip to Bethlehem. And so here you have it going on. Now, if you and I had been writing this story, I dare say we would have written it differently. I think we would have talked about Mary. She was full of child. She was nine months pregnant. She had to ride on a donkey. She had to travel down 90 miles And then if you take the movie, wasn't there swirling storms and raging rivers? None of which is actually in Israel, of course, but it makes for a good movie. Because isn't that the drama almost that we want to hear? The inconvenience to Mary, so that somehow we can admire her more. And there's nothing wrong with admiring Mary. But when God writes a book, he writes it always in a different way than what we expect. And here he focuses in on the big picture so that we will understand just how precious the virgin birth is and why it's rooted in world history. So, Caesar is in charge. He's the most powerful man on earth. But what do you learn? You find out, in fact, that Caesar Augustus is a puppet. The little strings the invisible strings that move his heart and move his mind that led him to call for a census are pulled by the sovereign in heaven. It's God's little puppet. He's God's little Caesar, Caesar boy. And he does whatever the Lord tells him to do. Before Luke wrote this gospel, he actually had a sit-down interview with Mary. That's how he knows so much of the detail. He did an interview with Mary. He could have brought out all kinds of detail on that interesting trip, but he chose not to. Instead, he chose to show you 
that God rules over the rulers of the earth to make them do his will. Because where is Jesus expected to be born? Well, that's where Mary lives. Where? Nazareth. Up in Galilee. Where they grow up. But what happens? God pulls a string. The puppet speaks and says, let everyone go to his own city to be registered. In great inconvenience, at nine months pregnant, Mary and Joseph take the travels 90 miles south down to Bethlehem in order that God might fulfill the ancient scripture that says the Messiah gets born in Bethlehem. That's how God works, invisibly, majestically, but for him to pull the string on the world's ruler is no different than making the sun rise in the morning. All the same to him. Easy. And let us remember that God establishes governments and their rulers. He uses them. He controls them. He uses their pride, even if they think they're huge people in influence. He uses things that they think are of their own doing, all in order to accomplish his own purposes, even when they aggravate everyone who lives underneath them, which, of course, is pretty much everybody. And so the idea would be that, oh, my goodness, what's the important thing today? Well, there's a new president coming in. There's an old president going out. That's what's really important. Not really. Not really. The virgin birth is incredibly more important than either of those things. You ever read a book on the virgin birth? You ever read a sermon on it? I hope you have. So incredibly more important than the presidency and the world rulers and the present situations that are going on in the world. But one thing for sure, you take us away right at the beginning. God definitely controls all of human life from the great, like Caesar Augustus, to the small, like Mary and Joseph. He owns it all. He rules it all. And it tells us that, frankly, apart from Jesus Christ, world history has no meaning. It has no significance. It's unimportant. Where is it going? Nowhere, frankly. The world around you is so much this morning and this week about celebrating, celebrating. Really, we celebrate Jesus Christ. We don't celebrate world history as if somehow there's a, there's a natural progression to everybody getting more, more money and more happy. And we're going to be winning all the time, all the time. And you're going to say to me, I can't take the winning anymore. Are you kidding in a cursed world? I'll tell you what. In the annals of world history, Barack Obama and Donald Trump will barely make a footnote somewhere. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, is the owner of it all. He takes it all. He comes back. He puts it in his hand, and he stuffs it in his pocket, and he walks away. World history. He's coming back in the not-too-distant future, and he's coming soon. He's going to wrap it all up, and he's going to take care of it, and he's going to establish his kingdom. Amen. So that's the verse, first three verses. The first three verses is world history. Just remember what everybody was talking about back then. What was the big news? The decree by Caesar Augustus, oh, his brilliance, and the fact that he could establish cities, move troops, win battles, and all the amazing things he could do. What was really important? God was pulling the invisible strings on his little marionette puppet in order to establish the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. So let's go from the world history now as Luke transitions now into the personal history. 
And, and, and note this, we normally think of the personal history as who's the hero of Christmas? Mary, she's the one who gives birth and the cold and the rain and the storm and everything else. But look at how Luke starts it in verse 4. He doesn't start it with Mary, he starts it with Joseph. So join me in verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. You get these names in these verses, names like Joseph, place like Judea, a man's name David at the end of verse 4. And you get, you're starting to get tied into God's ancient promises, but they're they're now being drawn specifically to a common guy named Joe. <laughs> He's just a common Joe. God never made promises to Joe. God made promises to David, King David, a thousand years before. That's what's being referred to here. Let me read you that promise out of 2 Samuel 7. This is the promise that's being spoken of. God says to David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you. He will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Man, a forever kingdom. Compare Caesar Augustus, who is now kind of a footnote in history, or any U.S. president you want to choose. Compare that to a forever kingdom, and you now have your proper perspective. Now, in these verses, we aren't told if Joseph believes that the promise that had been made to David was being fulfilled, partially fulfilled. Was In any way, did Joseph know that by going down to Bethlehem that in some way there was something special going on? Did he know that? We're not told in these verses But we know that he had faith in God to believe in God for even the impossible. For after all, his betrothed, Mary, was pregnant. And any guy is going to think the worst of her. But God had revealed to Joseph in a dream back in the Gospel of Matthew, we know this, to take Mary as your wife and don't be afraid to do it, Joe. Well, he does. He betrothes her and he's going to marry her. And when she gives birth, she's going to be his wife. She's not going to be left alone. So here he is taking Mary with a child not of his own, all based on a dream, which, by the way, you forget dreams, right? They start to lose kind of their their meaning. you, You forget them. You have a dream. You tend to forget it even within an hour. You can certainly doubt yourself when you have a dream, but you don't see that either in Joseph. And so now here it is, months later, and strange is it not that Mary, who is almost due, and the whole ruler of the world, you're thinking about if you're in Joseph's shoes, here's the ruler of the whole world, Augustus making a decree that's personally affecting me, and here we are being forced to go of all places down to Bethlehem with Mary nine months pregnant. And God is having them travel this therefore 90 miles south. So you see, here's the question to ask, since Mary is betrothed to Joseph, and it's this. Why did Mary have to go? 
She didn't have to. She's nine months pregnant. All you have to do is take the head of the household to go down. That's what the decree was about. You don't have to bring all your wife and kids. That's onerous on a lot of people. No, the head of the household has to go down. He has to register his household, and he has to pay a certain amount depending on the size of his household and his holdings. Joseph was probably poor as a church mouse. You know, much? I don't know, was he thinking, well, I don't want to leave Mary alone? But she would have had family at least somewhat nearby, no? To help her when the birth came? Certainly if you're thinking, well, what's the wisest thing to do for this little baby who's about to be born? It's not to take Mary out on a 90-mile cross-country journey on a mule, right? Of which she probably walked a good deal. Like, that's the best way to take care of your nine-month pregnant fiancé? I don't think so. Why did Mary go? In the Roman government, they don't care. Joseph isn't responsible for Mary. They're not married yet, so they wouldn't have required Mary to go. He could have just said, look, she's betrothed to me. I'm paying for her, and they would have been just great with that. So why did Mary go? There's only one logical answer when you think about it this way. It is that Joseph did believe the promise of the Old Testament prophet Micah, who wrote that there's going to be someone born out of you, O Bethlehem, whose goings are from of old, from even eternity. This promise was not hidden in a side room. You grow up in a religious culture, and a lot of people know John 3.16, including many non-Christians, because it's just so popularly spoken. It becomes part of the culture. There are certain things that become popular from religion and culture, and the birth of the Messiah being in Bethlehem is one of those things. So well known was the prophecy out of the book of Micah that the people, by the time Jesus was now in his three-year ministry, the people used it to criticize him. They didn't know. They assumed that he had grown up and been born in Nazareth. But he didn't. They didn't know that he had been born down in Bethlehem. In John chapter 7, listen to this. Some of the multitudes were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there arose a division in the multitude because of him. And all they had to do to figure out where was Jesus born was to ask him. But they didn't. Instead, they argued about it. All it would have taken was for some simple soul to go up to Jesus and say, Jesus, what town were you born in? And you would have had your answer right there, Bethlehem. By the way, this is kind of a good way to handle your doubts about maybe the virgin birth or about other miracles of Christ. Go to God and ask him about it. Go to God and ask him about it. He's very good at helping us overcome wherever our doubts are if we go to him with faith. See, God works all things. The very, very large, he makes human history swing its pendulum to his own arc, 
but he also works in the small as well. Individual affairs and global affairs are all alike to him. All of it to him is infinitely understood and managed. I say that to you to introduce to you to verse 6. Notice how it's written here. Verse 6, look there. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. I love the way the King James puts it. The days were accomplished. There's a passive language in verse 6. Are your days ever completed? You don't say that, do you? The days were completed for me to go to work. No, you don't talk that way. It's too lofty. It's too high. You go, today I went to work. So where, where did you go to school? Well, I went to the University of Connecticut until my days were completed. You don't, it's too high, right? This is kind of a divine passivity here. In other words, God was the one managing the days here. The days were completed for her to give birth. The birth that he initiated through the Holy Spirit when he placed the divine Lord Jesus in the womb of a virgin so that she became the bearer of the full humanity and full deity, Son of God and Son of Man. The days were completed that had been initiated and ordained of God. So that's, that's a little key there, is it not? I know we look at the Bible and we say, well, it's the Bible, so it ought to talk that way. But notice the same, at the same time, the days were completed. These were enumerated, enumerated days before they had yet begun. And it was prophesied and predicted and planned that the child would be born down in Bethlehem and for God to accomplish that while impregnating her up in Nazareth through the Holy Spirit. He had to move them down to Bethlehem. And he did it through the most marvelous of means. Now, if you're a worrier, if that's kind of your thing, your besetting sin, stop right here, okay? There's a lot for you to worry about in this passage. So if you enjoy worrying, if that's kind of your thing, wait, how's going to help this girl? She's down in Bethlehem. Where are they going to stay? Oh, no, what if it's a breech birth? Oh, I've heard of breech births, especially on girls who have ridden on donkeys a lot. This is a terrible thing. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. I forgot. You aren't in control. I forgot. I'm sorry. Sorry, my bad. God has it covered. Look at verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Worrying is an insidious sin. Isn't it true that all of us kind of project our worrying upon Mary? Don't we all assume that when Mary was traveling down on the donkey, she was filled with worry? Because we think that's what I would have done if I was Mary. No. Don't we think to ourselves, man, she must have really been, you know, wondering and and pretty scared about what was happening. And I can't but imagine that all those kind of thoughts definitely went through her head more than once. No. So what did she do with them? What did she do with them? Well, she would have to go back in her mind to the fact that the Holy Spirit put this child inside of me. I think I can trust him for this. Can you say, well, the Lord saved me, so I can trust him for this? Whatever you're going through, 
The Lord did. The Lord rescued me out of my sin, and He took my feet out of the miry clay. I think I can trust Him for this too. Or I tell you what: if you have a hard time and you're a worrier, why don't you take one finger and trace it in the palm of your other hand, and wiggle it around until you find the same place where Jesus had a spike put through His in order that he could become an atoning sacrifice for you by being hung on a cross and having been hung there by that spike. And then you feel that spot. And then you say to yourself, what need have I to worry if my Savior loved me so much that he died this way for me? And then see if your worry measures up to that measure of divine love. I dare say it won't. When we were reading through verse 7, there's a remarkable little two-word phrase. I need to draw your attention to it right now. Do you see it as firstborn son? It's Mary's firstborn son. She gave birth to her firstborn son. What about Joseph's firstborn son? Well, I'm sorry, but he's a guy named James. Her firstborn son is Jesus. I mean, the father, in biblical language and in the patriarchal nature by which God has ordained human society, the promises travel down through the fathers. They are the ones who beget. There's a humor there. If you have the old King James, you go through the genealogies. You can even go into Luke chapter 3 in your King James, and you'll see so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. Listen, no man ever begat anyone. Women do all the begetting but it takes a guy to make the beginning happen. You see, the idea here is that you're expecting to think, wait a second, it's, it's a firstborn son comes from a dad. Dads and fathers have sons, and they grow up, and then they have sons, and then they grow up, and they have sons, and so the order goes. This is the way it works. Women don't have sons who grow up to bear to be mothers, if you catch what I'm saying here. They grew up to be fathers. So the idea then of, of her having a firstborn son means Jesus Christ is the son of no man. This is exactly what Thomas Jefferson claimed was an error. The virgin birth. The Bible claims that Jesus Christ is different from all others. He escapes entirely the taint of Adam's sin. He is born a baby without original sin, pure and holy, fundamentally different than you and I in that regard, fundamentally different than all of our beloved children, fundamentally different than all the children our children will give birth to. So what you have in verse 7 is a tacit, undeniable testimony to a virgin birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son. That's powerful language. He is the son of no man. He is the son of the Holy Spirit in his humanity. It's remarkable how the Holy Spirit took Mary's DNA and made a complete human being out of it 
playing around a little bit with that last, what is that, the 23rd XY chromosome there? Playing around a little bit with it to make sure that it was a male, born from just a female, which as I understand it, you can't do, unless you're God. And seeing to it that this firstborn son would be virgin-born, right in Bethlehem, of course. Now, the scene that verse 7 draws for you is quite adorable. It's one that endears itself to every parent because they wrapped him in cloths, and you kind of know that, how sweet it is to take a newborn child. And you know how they do it? They bundle up his little leggies, and they bundle up his little armies, and they put them all around the body, and then they wrap them up really tight, and they fold them in a special way so that he's all content and happy, or she's all content and happy. And then this cute little bundle you can hold, and it weighs like, you know, nothing and you're holding him or her in your arm. And every little parent, every one of us, loves verse 7. They wrapped him in cloths because it's tangible to us. We know what that is. We know how sweet that is. And then laid him in a manger. And frankly, that may have been in part because she was so tired. Possible, certainly. Those cloths are very important, by the way. If you flip and look at verse 12... When the angels talk to the shepherds, they say, This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So they're going to be looking for those cloths. And then the very famous phrase at the end of verse 7, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them at the end. So here's a question for you. If Mary gave birth in a stable inside a cave that was filled with animals, where did the strips of cloth come from? You know, the, the strip of cloth guy who walks up and down the roads at night. Oops. So listen, for those of you who want the Christmas story that we all grew up with in, left intact, you can check out right now. Feel free to daydream. I'm sure you can imagine the football game this afternoon. You can ignore me for the next few minutes, okay? You have my permission I'm giving you fair warning that I'm going to tear apart some of the Christmas story that you and I have grown up with. So if, if you want to just check out, you want Christmas to be all sentimentality, please, you know, this is your time to have your Hallmark move, moment. Go ahead and just relax. As far back as the second century, the tale has been told that Jesus was born in a cave outside the city of Bethlehem. And the only ones who were there were the animals. But if Jesus was born in a cave outside the city because they didn't have caves inside the city, anywhere near the city of Bethlehem. How then did the shepherds find him since they were told to go into Bethlehem and to look for certain things that we just talked about? The angel told them that the baby was in Bethlehem. Oops. Now I know this goes against some treasured Christmas lore, but there was no hard-hearted innkeeper who kicked this young couple out into the cold night because there was no room in his heart. Actually, far from the truth, for a Middle Easterner, going to the city of your family's birth, your family's origin, housing is the easiest thing to get. As a member of the tribe of Judah, Joseph would have had extended family there. And by custom, he was obligated to seek them out first so as not to shame them by ignoring them. You would have the same problem if you have family in Cincinnati, Ohio, and you drive through Cincinnati, Ohio, and you don't call or stop in, are you in trouble? You better believe it, right? Yeah, not that side of the family. I'm talking about the good one. 
You just don't do that. Well, even more if you're a Middle Easterner and you're traveling by foot and you've got, oh my goodness, a nine-month pregnant wife with you. The idea of a Middle Eastern culture and getting turned away at an inn staggers all Middle Eastern imagination. We're hardly known here in the West for our hospitality, but even Tom Bodette will leave the light on for you. So what's the real story behind this? Well, here's what's going on. Back then, houses were small, and they were made up of four rooms. In the different rooms, they did different things. But there was a central room where at night you took your main animal, your ox or your sheep, whatever, depending on the level of wealth in your home, and most people didn't own much, or your goat, or maybe a couple animals, three animals, and you bring them inside. And you put them in a central room because, number one, they're going to give off heat throughout the night. That's going to be nice. And you keep them there because you don't want anybody to steal them during the night if they're outside. So these animals would provide heat. They're safe. Jesus referred to this one time he was addressing the Pharisees and he said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead him away to water him? Because they'd be tied up to a a stone manger inside the house. You untie them from the stone manger and you lead them out to feed them water. It's the way everybody did it. Back then you just parked your animal in the house at night and then first thing in the morning you took it outside And then one of the kids cleaned up whatever was there from the animal. Actually, they made a specially sloped part of the room, a sloped down, so that anything the animal did all pooled in one area. And then it would be cleaned out, thoroughly cleaned out, so it didn't smell and mess the place up for the entire day. So homes back then, these little four-bedroom homes, all had a kind of a central room with an open area for an animal or two or three to be tied up to a stone feeding trough. That stone feeding trough was called a manger. You don't want the animal knocking it over during the night. If it's made of wood, all it has to do is pull on it. But if you make it of heavy stone and you have it hollowed out so you can put some feed in there or maybe one section has water, then you could take care of your animal during the night. It'd be a place to put some nice hay for the animal at night. And then then you had an extra room among these four rooms that you would use for storage. But when you would have guests come over, you would put them in that room and you just take your storage items and you just kind of pack them away or to the side or somewhere else. And that name of that side room was a Ketulama. Ketulama. Now, if you had more guests come, you squeeze as many as you can into this side room called a Ketulama. You, then you have too many guests. Well, then you kick the animals out of the central room and you put your extra guests in the central room where the animals are fed. You have a full ketulama. you got more guests. You would never turn them away in Middle Eastern hospitality. My goodness, your social stock in town would go down if you ever turned away guests. No way you would ever turn away guests. Some of you understand that, who maybe come from some Hispanic backgrounds or uh, maybe Asiatic backgrounds where hospitality is extremely important. You don't mess with that. It's extremely important. So what do you do? You move the animals out of the house. You tie them up outside. Hey, if they get stolen, they get stolen. But we got guests. We got to put them up. We're going to put them in the central room where we keep our animals. And we're going to let them stay there. So they kicked the animal out. They took the hay, set up a mattress for Mary. And there 
with all the women and all the guys in the side rooms, a woman cries, a baby's born with lots of people around in a house. They wrap them up in little strips of cloth that would have been readily available. And the shepherds, a couple hours later, simply by asking around in town, hey, where's a baby that's been born? We heard about it. Oh, yeah, just down the street. Just go there. Just got born. We heard about it. And they find the baby. No problem. And so Jesus was born humbly. Look back at verse 7 with me. They laid him in a manger. Now we know why. You would have a stone manger where you kept your animal there in the central room. Because, and I'm going to give you the literal reading here at the end of verse 7, because there was no room for them in the ketulama. That's the word for in. Actually, the word in, in the Greek, is used in another place in the Gospels. It ain't this word. This isn't the word in. This is the word ketulama, side room, guest room. But because there was no room for them in the guest room, they had to put the little baby, they had to give Mary the central room, and that's where she gave birth. And then a little bit afterward, after he's all washed, stripped with cloths, his little arms, his little legs bundled up, they lay him in a stone manger to talk about the humility of the situation. Now, you can check back in if you've been off in sentimental land all this time and you don't want me to destroy how do we know this is true? Well, the word that's used there for in is not in. It's a different word. And it goes completely against Middle Eastern culture. You'd never, ever, ever allow a pregnant woman in a Middle Eastern culture to come and not be taken care of. She would get first preference over everybody. So they lay Jesus in the manger, in the corner, and in divine history... The God who never sleeps, now in his hypostatic union, sleeps for the first time. No wonder, one man wrote, what a wonder it is that two natures infinitely distant should be more intimately united than anything in the world, and yet without any confusion, that the same person should have both a glory and a grief, an infinite joy in the deity and an inexpressible sorrow in the humanity, that a God upon a throne should be an infant in a manger, the thundering creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man, are such expressions of mighty power as well as condescending love that they astonish men upon earth and angels in heaven. Let's pray. Our beloved Lord, to contemplate you being born in such humility and such lowliness and being born without sin is to contemplate and to touch the glories of heaven itself. And when the day soon comes that we will see you and be with you, and when the day soon comes that we will know you in your hypostatic glory, we will adore and magnify that day when you we're virgin born. So bless your holy name, Lord Jesus. We give you glory and honor. Amen.